You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Good evening. I'm Roy Foster and I'm going to chair this evening's discussion. I'm now going to introduce our panel starting on my left here with Ian Lee, who is an American resident now where she moved from China in 1996 and is the winner of multiple literary prizes, including a MacArthur Award. Um, she edits a magazine, A Public Space. She teaches at Princeton, which is extremely lucky to have her. She publishes widely in The New Yorker and elsewhere. And her books, notably A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, Gold Boy, Emerald Girl, and The Vagrants, have been widely admired. Among her many prizes, in fact, is a Frank O'Connor Award, which makes her just a little bit Irish, I think, or so we'll think. Next to her is um, Daniel McLaughlin, who was once a lawyer, as indeed Eon was once a scientist, but now is a full-time writer and has published stories in the dazzling trilogy of The New Yorker, The Stinging Fly, and The Irish Times. She has won the William Trevor Elizabeth Bowen International Short Story Competition. Her book, Dinosaurs on Other Planets, 2015, is very widely praised. She now is herself, she's a Cork woman herself and resident in Cork now, like those great Cork writers, William Trevor and Elizabeth Bowen must be something in the water. Next is John Banville. Where to start? John Banville has a multiple, I think possesses multiple writing personae which dazzle with every new book ever since Birchwood, which some of us can remember reading with excitement and a certain degree of confusion when it came out. He is hugely honored with prizes like the Booker and I think very appropriately the Kafka Prize because he is not a great Irish writer, he is a great writer, though he has received rarely honor in his own country. I once heard him say that he doesn't know how to take compliments, so I'm going to stop there. But <laughs> he richly deserves them and they will keep coming. Finally, another great Irish writer, Dermot Bulger, who is novelist, playwright, poet, and publisher. The Irish intellectual scene owes him much for Raven Arts Press and the New Island Press, but also for his luminous novels, such as The Journey Home, The Woman's Daughter, and A Second <coughs> Life. His plays are also profuse, uh, prolific and wonderful, notably the classic In High Germany. Most recently, Many of you will have seen his brilliant adaptation of Ulysses on the Abbey stage, a thing that one would have thought couldn't be done, but it was, and triumphantly. He's also the author, as if this wasn't enough, of ten poetry collections. I think what unites all these people tonight is an admiration for William Trevor, and I think that they also, in their own work, reflect Trevor-esque qualities. I'm now going to sit down and join them for what I hope will be 
a lively discussion interspersed with excerpts from films of William Trevor's work and finally, towards the end, another reading. What I'm going to ask you all first is to um, itemize or talk about what seems to you a quintessential Trevor work, whether a novel or a short story, because this earth is so wide, it's so rich, it's so complex, but I think it carries the maker's name on the blade. And Ian, I'd like to ask you, if you were asked, it's a horrible question, to isolate one of Trevor's works which speak to you of his quintessential qualities, what would you choose? Wow, it's like sending me to a forest and pick a tree that is the best tree. I love, uh, you know, I can, I can go on forever, but I love Piano Tuner's Wives. And I have read that story probably a hundred times. I have taught it every single semester, you know, since I started teaching. And it's, it, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of Trevor readers are familiar with the story. It's about two women, but it's a you know classic triangle story. But one woman already died, and I I always talk to my students and I say it's the best ghost story ever written about a woman who is always <coughs> present. And there is the understanding between the piano tuner and his new wife about what's going on, but neither of them has any power or control about what to change and it's quite a sad story. And it's also it's it's, it's exhilarating to see such sadness, if I can say that. <laughs> and exhilarating to see such technique always as well, well yes, it's, for, it's, for a writer. For I'm a interested writer. you mentioned ghosts, because the more I've been rereading Trevor a lot for the last few weeks, and I, I, it hadn't struck me before how, how ghostly his fiction is. Rather like, again, Elizabeth Bowen's ghosts people his pages. Mm -hmm. People are haunted. The dead appear constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Danielle, could we move on to you and your quintessential Trevor? Piece? I love the way you described it as a ghost story. Um, the story I've selected, I think it's, it's a ghost story as well in a way. Um, it's a story called Foliada from Cheating at Canasta. Mm. And from the first time that I read it, it just <coughs> stayed with me and it has haunted me. Um, I think it's... I suppose it's difficult to condense it down to being just about one thing, but it's about how the past perhaps sometimes exacts a very harsh and disproportionate price. And in this story, um, two young boys, when they were around nine or ten, they push a, a dog, um, a much-loved pet, a blind Labrador, on a lilo out to sea, and, and the dog drowns. And, the way that that scene is written, it is just magnificent. It is the exhilarating sadness. It is so sad and it has never left me. And I think we see um, how that one event follows through in the lives of these two boys. Because when we meet them in the story, we're meeting them when they're men in their 40s. And their lives, their lives have been impacted in very different ways, and it's inter interesting to see how they dealt with what happened. In their lives ways. have been bruised 
And I think the last yes, line is that the, the narrator says at the end he, he liked his friend more than he liked himself. Yes. I, it, it's a wonderful story, mm. and that moment where the dog's barks turn into whales, whales. Yes. I can't read that without just mm. catching my breath. It's a, it's a powerful story. I'm so glad you chose that favorite of mine. John, this difficult question. There it is. Um, Trevor's genius is as a short story writer, um, one of the great short story writers of all time, I think. Uh, that story that Kathy so beautifully read uh, is masterly. Mm. And uh, I'm glad that it's in his final book. Um, but I'm going to choose uh, one of the novels. Uh, I was surprised when I looked at the list of his works that he's, he's written quite a, quite a few novels. I thought he'd only written a few, but no, he's written a dozen or more. And I would choose <clears throat> Mrs. Ekdorf in O'Neill's Hotel, which was published in 1969. It's, one is inclined to think of Trevor as writing about the quotidian world, about the, the so-called ordinary things of life, but this novel is one of the strangest novels I've ever read. I've read it three or four times, and I still don't understand it, which I always regard as a remarkable, a good work. Mrs. Eckdorf arrives in Dublin. She's a photographer, a professional photographer. And she goes to stay at O'Neill's Hotel. And O'Neill's Hotel is a very strange establishment. It's run by Mrs. Sinnott, who is over 90, and she's deaf and mute. Uh, and technically, the portrayal of Mrs. Sinnott is, 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 is masterly, because uh, here's a character who can't speak. And she has a wastrel son, and then there's Morrissey, who's a sort of part-time pimp who brings uh, prostitutes to the hotel. There's a local priest. It, it's just, and it goes on with a kind of, that quiet relentlessness that is the mark of Trevor's work. You keep thinking, this, this is too strange. But he makes it all seem perfectly simple and straightforward and necessary. And I think it's a masterpiece. I'm interested you say that you chose a novel and you see him as the great short story writer, because I think, and again, he's like Elizabeth Bowen in this, he can do both. And this is not that common. And one of the ways I think he does both is that he can use a short story to do, again, what Bowen said a short story writer should do, to open time out like a fan. And the story that Cathy read was, I thought, a very good example of that, that audacious swoop forward at the end, mm. which suddenly you think, am I reading something that's like a mini novel, mm. as some of his stories very much are. Dermot, what about you? Um, First, it's a great uh, honour to be asked to talk about William Trevor, and particularly with his son who's here today, and that, that makes it even more special. Uh, I'm going to pick a story from this book, because people have picked stories and novels going back to uh, over a very, very long career. But before I talk about that story, Nadeshda Mandelstam, the, uh, the wife of Ossip Mandelstam, said that a poet would spend his whole life, a whole, whole life, writing and produce this great body of work. And if they were lucky, it would boil down to being remembered for one poem or one stanza or one line of a poem. And so in some ways, when I think of William Trevor's work, I remember a short story, the name of which I cannot remember, but the essence of which I remember. And it is about a man and a woman, happily unhappy, uh, meeting for sex uh, illicitly in the afternoon 
uh, over a laundrette in London, and that sex not being satisfying, but it getting them through their lives. And sometimes that sort of is, is that thing of, of, we lost a great writer in Tom Murphy last week, and Tom Murphy gave us these, uh, these secular miracles of making us strive to sing like Gili. But William Trevor, in the main, he refuses to allow for those miracles of transformations. And what's remarkable in the stories is that the, the, the lives are not transformed. And there's a story in this book called uh, Making Conversation. And it's very, very, it's very funny. It's a very tragic story. He's funny. He's not savage. And it's about a woman, the, her doorbell rings. Uh, she, she'd met a man on, on the street a couple of years ago. The man began to pester her and uh, follow her around and offer to do this and everything else. And his wife turns up to get her husband back. And you presume, as a reader, that the husband, she's having a favorite husband. But the woman isn't. The woman has nothing to do with the husband. The woman can't stand the husband. The woman has been plagued by the husband and is living with another man and thinks it, 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 it's sort of... Uh, and there's this strange cruelty that the wife says, in this wonderful Trevor's line, he, he, the wife says, you took my husband away from me and now you can't give him back. You've stolen his hat, but he isn't physically here. And, and it's just that sort of the way that, that Trevor does these things. And there's, there's a, whenever, I try to, whenever I feel I'm getting pretentious or I feel I'm getting, I always remember uh, Leonard Cohn uh, and those great lines of Leonard Cohn about all the lousy little poets running around trying to sound like Charlie Manson. And the great thing with Trevor, he doesn't want to sound like Charlie Manson. But he gives us a lot of really, really quiet Charlie Manson-esque figures. Now, the figure in this story isn't Charlie Manson figure. Some of the other figures are very dark and strange in, in, in his work. But, but I love how it all unfolds very, very quietly, without pyrotechnics, without any sort of effects. And that it lingers, sort of, even though that, that make conversation, I remember the story I read 10 years ago that I couldn't find on my bookshelves. Uh, I remember nothing about the title of the book, but I remember the feeling of loneliness when they left that room. He's a connoisseur of loneliness and of cruelty. Mm -hmm. And you very carefully said, not savage, but actually I think there is a savage streak and an uncompromising streak mm -hmm. in how he represents the little awful and even the big awful things mm -hmm. that people do to each other, but especially the little awful But, but even when they're big awful, they're still mundane in a, in a strange sort of way. Yes, I think that's or, true. Or they're set in, in the mundane world, yeah. you know, which, which, which makes them more terrifying and more awful. Ian, do you see him as a writer who's drawn to the cruel and the savage? Is that an overstatement? You know, I, I have been reading his stories. A lot of dangers, a lot of bad things happen mm. to people. And yet, he's not drawing blood. He's injuring us. Like, we, we, we experience this inner injury, I think, more than just a cut on our finger. It, but in a very oblique kind of way. Yes, and I, in an oblique way, and also there's that aftertaste of a Trevor story. I always go back to that Emily Dickinson's, you know, quote. The next day you feel that your scalp was taken yes. off. I, every time I read his story, there are always lines that take my scalp off. And there are stories that when you read them, you will never forget where you were when you read them. I think of Attracta, which I think is one of the most brutal and horrifying stories about the Northern Irish crisis. We don't think of, of Trevor as a writer about the Northern Ireland troubles, but Attracta to me is one of the most um, heartbreaking reflections of that 30 years of tragedy. Now, we are going to watch a movie, or an extract from a movie. I'm trying to stick to the time here, but I want to come back to some of these things here. 
But one of the ways in which I think he came to a, a wider audience was through a remarkable film of one of his most remarkable short stories, The Ballroom of Romance, which was directed by Pat O'Connor, produced by Kenneth Trodd, and the screenplay for which was written by Trevor himself, with an extraordinary performance in it by Brenda Fricker. And we're going to see an extract from this now. I hope you can see it over our heads. I think we can stay in these seats. But shall we turn the lights down and have the, have the film? Well, I, I don't think Optrex can ever have been used as a more plangent metaphor than in that. <laughs> um, such, a wonderful, such a wonderful script, and by the master himself. That's the quint I'm using the word again, quintessential Irish Trevor in one of his Irish registers. We know his other Irish registers, the decaying big house, the, um, the, Lucy, the story of Lucy Galt, that kind of thing. But there's also the English register, where he writes about saloon bars in the afternoon, where he quarries the life of peculiar south coast towns, where he gets into English class obsessions in a way that I think only an outsider really can. Danielle, as a fellow Cork writer, do you see a difference in his techniques, his strategies, between when he's doing Ireland and doing England? I've never, I suppose, thought about it that way. I do know that I remember seeing the Ballroom of Romance when it was um, first shown, and ah. it has stayed with me again, that yeah. thing just haunting me, but it was seeing something that I recognised on the television, because I'm from rural Cork, and, you know, I thought, yes, that, that is my parish, my life, I could see it there, yeah. and it was, I think it was the first time that I ever saw something on television that I, I really? thought, yes, that's, you know, I can see that in my parish, in my community. John, can I put the same question to you about the Irish-English register, and are they different in his He world? had an extraordinary ear for um, not so much accents, but for cadences, for the way in which sentences are formed in England and in Ireland. Um, you mentioned earlier his Northern Irish stories, which I think are... Um, are undervalued. I think he wrote marvellously about Northern Ireland during the so-called Troubles. Uh, so he was able to do that as well. And then there, you know, there's his work, which is set in, in, uh, in Italy, and he, he caught that as well. So he was a marvellous, um, as I say, a marvellous at, at catching the, the shape in which people express themselves. Um, in that Beautiful extract from that film. I'd forgotten how good ballroom romance is. The three wide boys at the back uh, and the way they speak, uh, yeah. which is absolutely perfect. Perfect. Absolutely pitch perfect. Uh, and then the little exchange between Bridie and the, and the, the, the man that she's yeah. trying to inveigle into the farm. Again, it's caught beautifully. But he does English voices beautifully as well. Um, he does English voices, it seems to me, in an exoticizing kind of way. The language that the terrible Jarabi couple talk to each other in, in the old boys, it's high-flown, it's baroque, it's peculiar, it's like Ivy Compton Burnett. He's making them 
something very peculiar and odd. And I think that's what I mean by his Irish eye on English exoticism. When well, I read uh, The Old Boys yeah. again recently, I was struck by the way, the, the kind of language he put into middle-class, insecure English people's mm. voices and mouths. Well, I think that was part of his gift as a writer, that he was uh, an outsider, uh, wherever he was, but an outsider who could see the inside very clearly mm -hmm. indeed. Uh, like Elizabeth Bowen, um, who said that you know, her real home was somewhere halfway between mm -hmm. Ireland and England in the Irish Sea. I think Trevor was, was the same. Um, but he could, he could do the voices. He could do, and I think, I think you're right. I think it's because he was looking at it from outside. The Children of Dinmouth, he does the same thing. He turns this south coast town into some extraordinary grand guignol world of, of crazy yeah. exaggerations. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned earlier about the savagery, and I, I agree with you. I think that uh, Trevor's gentle, lapping tone hides very large monsters mm -hmm. down in the deeps. Timothy uh, Gedge in, in um, The Children of Dinmouth, the blackmailer, who is obsessed also by something else that Trevor gets very early on, which is celebrity culture. I mean, that novel is, what, 1975, mm. 1976? And it's all about somebody who thinks he will be endorsed and enabled by appearing on Bruce Forsyth or something on mm. television, that some awful telly person will come down to the town and make him famous. And again, that's prophetic in many ways, mm. but also adds to the peculiarity of the world mm. which Trevor is, is constructing. Dermot, do you have something to say about the Irish-English register? I, I remember reading and then watching uh, The Remains of the Day, which obviously isn't by William Trevor, but thinking that it would never be written by an English writer because, he would, yeah. it, because it, it needed to be an outsider to notice all of those things. And it, it's, I think so, <coughs> Trevor is an outsider in Ireland, he's an outsider in England, and I mean, it's very hard for us to remember this, but there was a time when being a bank manager was a very respectable profession. And, uh, and William Trevers was the son of a bank manager and moved around. And, and, and so, well, Elizabeth Bowen is from that world of the big house. I mean, mm. Trevor is, uh, isn't, isn't of the big house. In, in a way that Yeats would never have got with the Nassus roar of Lissadell, only he wrote poems, because certainly the, the family were in trade. And, you know, there wouldn't have been, there was that class distinction. And so in some ways, he is perpetually, what makes Trevor a great writer is that he's always on the outside. He's always standing at a slightly peculiar angle to whatever world he's writing about, whether the, the world of, I couldn't imagine William Trevor dancing with Brady in that ball romance, but, but, but he gets the world of John McGowan brilliantly. Yeah. And he gets the world of the big house brilliantly, and he gets Northern Ireland brilliantly. And because he had, I think he just, he just positions himself slightly away from everything, which may go back to a childhood of being the son of a bank manager. Of but he's marginalised in another Irish way. We have to use the P word here. You mm -hmm. know, he is a Protestant. Yeah. And in, in the days when he was growing up, when bank managers were very often Protestant, as you say, they moved around, but they also, being Protestants, lived in a slightly at an angle to the, the majority world. Elizabeth Bowen writes wonderfully about that in Seven yeah. Winters. And I think that it, that's another angle that he has mm -hmm. on Irish experience. And, and that angle special. isn't, as, that wall isn't so absolutely, because I remember talking to somebody who grew up in Malahide from a Protestant family and was approached, the father was approached on the train and said, we notice your son goes to the local school. 
And he says, yes, but it's a Protestant school. And the other father says, yes, but they're not our types of Protestants. <laughs> and, so, and, and so we are, even within that world, the worst writers of mm. you know. Um, we're going to have another reading now, and interestingly, it's going to be from that English world that I talked about, from his wonderful and chilling novel, The Boarding House. Again, we're going to have Cathy Belton reading for us from the podium here. Concealed from the public eye, snug within his coffin, Mr. Bird looked as he had looked in life. Despite his size and the flowing bulk of his flesh, he had borne always since a child the grey pallor of death. And he had a way of seeming as still as a statue. There was a new transparency about his skin, but it was not as yet a slight thing, and the evidence of real decay was not apparent. Mr. Bird had often thought about his funeral and visualised the scene. It was a pity he could not relish it now. For he, more than anyone, would have enjoyed this mourning that convention demanded. More even than Nurse Clock, who was enjoying it well enough but resented the drizzle that dampened her face. More by far than the others of the boarding house, who stood by the graveside and made no pretense who did not enjoy the thing at all. They had come, all of them, but they felt attendance to be a duty. I am going to a funeral, said Venables, the <coughs> controller of office traffic. And his superiors, or a few of them, for there were many, had looked askance and sour and asked some questions about the deceased, who the deceased had been in life and what the relationship had been with Venables. He, he took me in. He was like a father. I knew no father as a child. So Venables took two hours off and promised to make them up. He'd never before done such a thing, for he had never wished to, nor had occasion to. He felt himself a pioneer within himself as he stood by the graveside, but he did not care for all these trimmings that went with death, and he reflected with pleasure that the ceremony could not last forever. The drizzle freshened the short grass of the graveyard and toned down the lime of new headstones. It was a suitable day for a funeral, though Major Eel had said that morning that he hoped for sun. I will stand about in sunshine till kingdom come, he said. People have caught their debts in chill churchyards. The words had irritated others who felt in different ways that the words were unseemly, implying as they did a lack of respect for death, the universal thing. Gallaty and Mrs. Slape stood close together behind the residence, humble in their stance, accepting the point that they were paid while others paid their way. I recognise the good in you, Mr. Bird had said that day to Gallaty, and she had said, I was taken short. I could not go on. 
I came to this house because it was at a corner. Do not be sorry, Mr. Bird had replied, although she had not claimed that she was sorry and did not feel it. Do not be sorry that you came in an emergency to this house at a corner. Sooner or later, we knew that this would happen, and happen it has. Where are you off to with that haversack? <coughs> and she had explained, What now? asked Gallanty to Mrs. Slape, thinking of the death. What now? Who shall pay us? What shall happen? I felt I had come home. Mrs. Slape did not reply. She wore maroon, a fitted coat, and a hat that matched the colour. She was thinking of the kitchen and how pleasant it would be to be there at this moment, making the place cosy, ascertaining that there was something in hand to drink in the evening. God helps those, was Mrs. Slape's motto, carved out on a hard hat life. What shall happen? repeated Galatee, and Mrs. Slape bade her be quiet. They had agreed long since, amidst their kitchen chores, that neither of them had had the easiest of times. <coughs> they talked of themselves as they worked by day and later as they sat in rest. They were, they said, well met, as good at listening as they were at giving forth. But now was not the time, thought Mrs. Slate, as she silenced Gallaty. Now was not the time, because words could not flow in a manner that was unrestrained. Now was a time that was given up to the committing of Mr. Bird, and one could not make it otherwise. One could not escape the insignificance of the hole that gaped in the ground, nor of Mr. Bird encased in wood and deep within it. The servant girl is muttering, said Major Eel. She mutters at an open grave, or else choose gum. Nothing is sacred. He looked across the distance at Mrs. Slape and Maroon and Gallaty murmuring in emotion. Gallaty's ferret face was all a quiver. He could see the twitch in her eye and her lips rising and falling. God is present, called out Major Eel, cutting through the clergyman's words, staring hard at Gallaty. The others shuffled their feet, embarrassed by the Major saying so odd a thing and saying it so loudly. Only the boarding house people with the clergyman stood by the graveside. The clergyman, who had never known Mr. Bird, nor even heard much of him until it was too late, wondered between moments of prayer what manner of man this one had been. Lodged in his mind was the information that the man had died at 67, that he had been of heavy build and with a foot deformity. Were these the family, wondered the clergyman, glancing around the semicircle they made and doubting that theory almost as soon as it was formed. God is present, called out the man who might have been a brother and the others, an African friend and maybe a daughter, sisters and servants, had rippled in a communal way as a crowd ripples in church. And then, while all that was going on, the clergyman's glance fell on the face of Rose Cave, and recognition trickled in his brain. He called her name. She often came and sat far back and slipped away. Once he had shaken hands with her and learned that she lived in a boarding house some way away, he thought that odd to live in a lodging house nowadays. 
when so many people preferred bed-sitting rooms with cooking facilities that made them independent. All at once in the clergyman's mind, the pieces linked. There was more information than he had known but forgotten until now, that the heavily built man was himself the keeper of some boarding house and had been too a singular man, a godly man, so the clergyman had heard, though not apparently a member of the Church of England, the church that now was called upon to hold this final service. So the man had been the landlord of the lady who was wont to slip away. And of all these others, thought the clergyman, inspired. And further thought that here was something just a little odd. Vouchsafe, we beseech thee, said the clergyman, to bless and hollow this grave, that it may be a peaceful resting place for the body of thy servant. The wet soil clattered upon the wood of Mr. Bird's container. The clergyman closed his prayer book and held it flat on his chest. We're now going to have another excerpt from a Trevor film made by the same team, director Pat O'Connor, producer Kenneth Trodd, and script by the man himself. It's called, as a film, One of Ourselves, but it's actually based on a wonderful short story called An Evening with John Joe Dempsey, which was published in the Ballroom of Romance. Um, it also, I think, is going to help us move on to two of Trevor's most key subjects, in my opinion, a drink and sex. Um, but let's see the film now, or part of it. <coughs> Another useful tip there. Um, that film, that story must have been much less easy to, f not easy to film, nothing's easy to film, but it, it's more difficult to compress into film because it's about sexual obsession. The boy who's 15 is obsessed by sex. Every woman he sees in the village he thinks of as a fantasy sexual partner. Um, his only friend is uh, local older man who is what was then called a dwarf and who isn't quite right in the head but who is the only person who talks honestly to him about sex and the way that in the 15 year old's mind the ghastly reminiscent of reminiscence of the tarts in piccadilly and the vision of the virgin mary is sort of placed against the actual honesty and directness with which Quigley, his only friend, talks to him about sex, is the centre of the story. And of course, he, he will be and is told that he has to stop seeing this unsuitable friend. Um, and that's how the story ends. Um, it's one of those ways in which Trevor, I think, conflates drink and sex. And when you read The Irv, he does that over and over again. Nobody writes better about people losing it in drink. Uh, Major Eels and Mrs. Latour getting plastered in um, the boarding house is one of the great scenes. Timothy Gedge getting drunk on sherry at the Abigail's tea party and referring to C Commodore Abigail homoing all over the joint to his wife and various other things. 
It seems to me that that's one of the darker and more hilarious aspects of Trevor that we mentioned earlier. Ian, what do you make of this? How do you think he approaches these two quintessentially important subjects of drink and sex? Well, he, he, he does it differently than most writers, I mm. would say. You know, if you look at reading Tegenev, for instance. Yes. You know, the man was, the man was a teetotaler, and then all of a sudden he started to drink a little, and yeah. he started to drink a little, and you see that marriage just never happens. But again, it's, it's much deeper than just drink and sex, but it's, it's the sadness of those two, you know, trapped in that marriage. They, they have nowhere to go. And I can't, I can't think of another writer who would approach the two topics that way. And also there's that wonderful story called A, a Day, where the man comes home every day to the drunk wife. Yes. You realize it's, it's written so patiently, it's unfolded as one day, but and then by the end of it, you realize it's a life. Yeah. It's the man's life to this woman who drinks, and every day, every night, he has to c carry her upstairs yeah. and put her in bed. And there's always something behind those, you know, drinks. Drink and is both a suppressant and an enabler <coughs> yes. in these stories, which I guess it is uh, chemically. Yeah. Um, and even with the drinks, you know, there's less drama, or there's a subdued drama than, you know, going all over the places when people get drunk. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, I think he, he handles things differently. John, what would your line be on drink, sex, and William Trevor? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, again, the, the sort of the public notion of him is as a sort of, you know, writing about safe little worlds and the ordinary humdum, humdrum, mundane occasions. But in fact, he's not that at all. He's, he's terribly subversive. Yeah. Um, and he's, and as you say, he's, he's savage and he's cruel. But he does it with such a mild tone. Uh, and, you know, it was like that to talk to the man. Uh, mostly his jokes, and they were very good jokes, but they were, they were gone before you realized that it was a joke. The <laughs> laughter was always slightly delayed with, with Trevor's jokes. Um, and of course, he sees in drink that quintessential Irish affliction uh, that it brings out the talker, these interminable stories about the self and about what it is to be uh, Irish and what it is to be a man and what it is to be alive in this world. It, it was good to be reminded of what a wonderful actor Nadabin was and how oh, well he served um, uh, William Trevor. Uh, he's, he's <laughs> but it also struck me that he, he, Trevor must have been a wonderful observer and listener. Um, most writers uh, write about themselves and their experience of the world. Mm. All their characters are essentially themselves. Trevor doesn't do that. He sees how odd people are, how, how uncommon people are. He sees that there is no such thing as an ordinary person. Now, Joyce had said that before him. Joyce said he yeah. never met an ordinary person. 
Uh, but Trevor brings that to an extreme. That, as I said in, in the novel Mrs. Ektorf in O'Neill's Hotel, it just gets weirder and weirder, and you realize that Mrs. Ektorf was mad as a hatter. Um, but yet, it's never stated. Um, and the drink and the sex, they don't really bring out the beast in people. They just confuse things and make them more woozy and more dotty. Mm. Uh, and sometimes more delusional. He's very yeah. good on people who are projected yeah. into delusion. Yeah. Yeah. But and he writes wonderfully about disappointment. Yes. And, you know, sex and drink are the great consolations of disappointment <laughs> in life. The, As I recall. <laughs> <laughs> the listening thing, his agent, the late Pat Kavanagh, said that he used to sit on park benches and listen to people's conversations, but he never listened through to the end. He'd get what he wanted, and he told her that he thought it would be spoiled if he, if, if he heard the real, their ending of the, the account of the story. He would then walk away and build on the little bit that he'd heard, because that's, that's what he needed. Well, my, my favorite line from Trevor, and we haven't really touched on just how funny he is. Uh, my favorite line is, and it's so funny because of that, because it just comes in. There's no introduction to it. There's no follow-up to it. I can't remember which of the stories it's in, but it's a, a man in a, a boarding house down the country. And um, he hears the formidable uh, Tarbigant, uh who runs the, the boarding house, talking to her husband. And the line is just... Is, and why did you put the greyhound in the cement mixer in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> and it's as I say, it's just, it's just, I'm sure Trevor heard it somewhere. Heard, heard. Uh, and just said, that's, and it's perfect. And it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't uh, have a, an introduction, doesn't have a follow on, uh, but it's placed like a jewel. Yes. Uh, heard, heard on a park bench, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, I was, I was rereading, um, I think, the boarding house on the plane coming over and laughing out loud to the embarrassment of my, yeah. my neighbours. It still makes me laugh. But there is also that, I'm not going to insist we talk entirely about sex and drink, but there are such dark themes of child molestation that run mm -hmm. through these books. Felicia's yeah. Journey, a novel I found almost impossible to finish, uh, the awful Basil Jarabi in The Old Boys, who begins as a comic character keeping his budget regards and engaging in minor theft, but then he's a child abuser. And the awful sentence when he takes a girl, little girl home from the park, she did what he told him to, but she cried afterwards. Yes. You know, he can stop you in your tracks by just saying enough. But one thing I would like to move on to, because I'm conscious and it's my fault that we've emphasized the darkness, the grongignol, the mercilessness of his observation. He, as you can see from the smiling photographs, was a wonderful man. There is a delightful article about him by his son in the Irish Times today. And anyone who met him, and I met him a few times myself, was completely charmed by his lack of pretentiousness by his humor and by his deliberate refusal not to act the grand writer. At least that was my impression of him. I met him through the David Cohen Prize, which is a prize for lifetime achievement 
won by people like Harold Pinter, Tom Stockard, and indeed William Trevor. And his, he was a breath of fresh air. Um, Daniel, you, he, he was important in the beginning of your career, wasn't he, as yes, a writer? absolutely. I never met William Trevor in person, but I was very fortunate to um, be a beneficiary of his generosity to emerging writers when I won the William Trevor Elizabeth Bowen competition some years back. And that was very important to me as a writer starting out, that encouragement and... I think it's a wonderful thing, the support of writers starting out. And of course, it was such a generous prize yeah. that um, it was 3,000 euros for uh, one story. Mm. And that was wonderful and very practical yeah. help. Ian, you knew him, didn't you? Yes, yes. And yeah, absolutely charming. And I have a, you know, a few very fun moments of seeing him. The first time I, I saw him, we were having lunch in Boston and halfway through lunch and he was talking and then he stopped and he said, look at that woman. There was a woman walking past us in an orange blouse. He said, look at that woman. Isn't she interesting? There's a story there. <laughs> and then he said, you know, it's so distasteful for an old man to stare at a young woman, but there's a story uh -huh. there, yes. And the last time I, I, I saw him, and, you know, really just a few years ago, we were in, in a restaurant and we were eating. And again, he, he, you know, I, you could see he was just watching the world, yeah. observing. And all of a sudden, he pointed at the three people behind the, the coffee bar, you know, two men and one woman. He, he said, well, those two, you know, those two men were not working, not doing anything. It's all the girl doing the work. <laughs> And he said, we should go protest. Did he, we see that he was, as indeed Mr. Bird is described as in, in the boarding house, a tireless collector of people. And that was William Trevor, a tireless collector of people. But did he talk to you about your joint trade? I mean, did he talk about the writing of stories? Did he ask you where your inspiration came from, if I can put it so crudely? Did he talk about strategies and techniques? No, not I, at all. Not at all. I don't think neither he or, nor I was interested in mm. that. Although I would say, you know, even little details. When I went to Devon to visit him, that beautiful house, we were there for lunch, and he sat me down and facing the window because it was February. The garden just started to bloom a little. Mm. There were flowers in the garden, and he sat me down, and then he he got up and he rearranged the curtain. He said, that way you can see the flowers, but mm. the sun would not get into ah. your eyes. And you realize this is a man who pays a lot of attention to details. Well, it fascinates me that he was a sculptor and a very proficient sculptor, yes. as well as a writer. Yeah. And did that come across that he was a visual artist as well as a literary artist? Not terribly common to, to be you know, distinguished in both, but he was. Yes, I think just the way he looked at the world. He took me to see Harry, Harry, um, Harry Moore's uh, sculpture ah. in, um, in Cambridge, yeah. in Massachusetts, when we first met. <coughs> and you can clearly see he was just mm. processing this world. John, did your paths cross? Yes, the, the longest time that I spent with him was in Venice. Uh, he'd won a prize that I was involved in. And, um, 
What struck me about him, I used to see him wandering about this, this very grand hotel on the, on the Canale Grande. Um, and I realized one day, I thought, he doesn't adapt himself to places. He adapts places to himself. Mm. He was unique. He was William Trevor, and he was always William mm. Trevor. The rest of us, well, most of us, we, you know, we were chameleons. We adapt ourselves to our surroundings. Oh. But uh, he there was, was, was William Trevor oh. in Venice. Uh, and Venice became, <laughs> you know, it, he left something indelible yeah. uh, there. My slight acquaintance with him absolutely bears that out, because I was with William Trevor in, of all places, Monaco. At a certain point in my life, I was involved with a strange outfit called the Princess Grace Irish Library of Monaco. And they liked to get people out to talk to the idle rich of, of Monaco. And for some reason, I think through the good offices of Terence Devere White, I managed to persuade William Trevor to come out and do a reading and talk to this largely uncomprehending, bejeweled audience. Um, but he was fascinated by it all. And the thing about Monaco, in a sense, and certainly about the Princess Grace Irish Library, was that widow power counts for a great deal. Everyone is Madame Paul Gallico or Madame uh, Anthony Burgess, you know, the widows of writers who moved there not to pay tax. And he was mopping it all up. <laughs> and the ladies of Monaco, took to him because he was extremely charming, and he and his wife Jane were going on down the Ligurian coast to stay somewhere near Rapallo or something, and so cars were ordered for him, and he absolutely refused. He loved the train, and they were getting on the train. And the last time I saw him, he was walking off with his little bag and his wife, trying to keep a straight face, I think, among all these slightly strange people, and catching the train down the coast was very characteristic. Dermot, did you come across him? We had a telephone conversation one time, around 20 years ago, and that was my sole uh, thing. But, but I felt I knew him because you, you feel, which you always feel you know a writer if you read a writer a long time. And, and that, that isn't always true. But I suspected that the William Trevor, that the William Trevor has been described here, is the way I felt William Trevor was. And uh, I, I think, you know, when writers get together, uh, generally what's discussed is um, uh, money and sex as against drink and sex. So drink, the, 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 the drink is normally involved. But uh, I actually sort of... Um, uh, what I love about the drink and the sex, to go back to it, is that it doesn't bring redemption, it doesn't bring fulfilment. And, and I mean, the, you, it's, the relationship with Joyce had been mentioned, that um, those, he has the factualness of Joyce's Dubliner stories, but he also has the despair of a Beckett, whereas... Beckett put people in dustbins, and that was very funny. William Trevor puts them on the tube, and that's even yes. funnier. You know, they're, 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 they're carrying all that sort of, uh, all the, the grief of their life, or all Precisely. the unfulfilled aspirations of their life, and, and they find escape briefly in drink, and they find escape briefly in sex, yeah. and, that do, and in the end, they come through it, and they're not changed by it, and, and, and that's the splendor of it. Winnie in Happy Days could be a William Trevor character, mm -hmm. and the wonderful... Baroque flights of her language are very Trevor-esque as well. I think so many writers pick up echoes of him and he picks up echoes of them, but he is entirely always himself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one reason why people find him and stick to him. He's a very, he's a very if I can use the word, beloved kind of writer for, for, for an enormously wide range of readers. 
I feel, incidentally, I've been very put in my place as a simple historian, innocently asking Eoin if they talked about strategies and, <laughs> and technique. And Dermot reminds me firmly that creative writers talk about money when they meet, <laughs> which um, I think is, is probably um, a, a, a basic truth. Um, we're reaching the end of our time, but I'd like to ask each one of you just to say what you think you have learned from reading William Trevor, besides the, the affection and admiration that we feel about him. Either learned as a writer, though as I say, I understand that close analysis of the craft isn't what writers talk about much, or what you've learned as a student of human nature, as you all are clearly from your work. Ian. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I would start just by saying I would not have become a writer, you know, had I not encountered Trevor's work. There are so many things I learned from him, but one thing I particularly like to talk with my students, this is actually pointed out to me by a student. He said, you know, with Trevor's short stories, he said, he either ends a story before other people end the story, or he ends after other people and the stories. And I think that's, if you read all his, the ending of his short stories, I think that's a very apt observation. And I was very happy my student pointed out to me. Yes. That's terrific. Daniel. Yeah, I just think his attention to choosing exactly the right words is extraordinary, and it extends even to when he chooses names for characters <coughs> or for places. So, for example, in the Ballroom of Romance, I think the band that plays is called the, Rom the Romantic Jazz Band, and they play the Destiny Waltz. Now, they, the band members never play any jazz of any kind, <laughs> and they're the least romantic group that you could imagine. And just, you know, the Destiny Waltz, when we think about that in the context of the story that, that yes. unfolds. So even the naming of things, I think that story that I particularly like, Folietta, where the dog is put out to oh. sea in the Lilo. The dog is called Jericho, and yes. that um, has so many, I suppose, resonances and fits in different mm. ways with elements of the story. It's mm. just wonderful, the attention um, to every single mm. word, right down to the naming of things yes. and characters. John. Well, I've tried, as I said earlier, um, Trevor is almost unique in that um, he, he's constantly looking outward from, not from himself, but from the point of view of others. I've tried to learn not to be as solipsistic as most creative writers are, to look at the world as it is, not in my view of it. I don't know if I've succeeded, but that's what I tried to learn from him. Thank you. And Dermot? Well, I, I would echo John in the sense that uh, Trevor absents himself from the stories, and I think that's a very, very democratic thing to do, that he allows the characters the space to be themselves, he doesn't have access to grind or big social issues to carry. I mean, they're, they're all in the background of what, but he doesn't have an, he doesn't bring an agenda to the lives of these people. He allows these people, their lives to actually play out. And he regards them with pity, but he doesn't let them off the hook. He doesn't, it, 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 he's never over, overly benign to them. And I, I think that there's a huge amount for somebody starting to write, to, to, to look at Trevor, to look at the very, very passive way the, the stories come in 
and the way in which he very, very subtly mugs us, because he brings us into a world that's ordinary, and uh, very, very slowly, without any great tone of anything, it suddenly becomes extraordinary or dark or sinister or strange or deeply profound. But he, 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 he can do that with very, very simple, effective yeah. language that simply slides us from one area to another area very, very quickly. And I, I, I think that most of his work is a masterclass in writing. It's that. Yeah, that's one thing I would add, that he is a master of the non-sequitur. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that line that I quoted. Yes. Uh, you know, he... he teaches you that it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to flow, it doesn't have to yeah. be continuous, because that's not how life is. I think Mariah Edgeworth says somewhere that the truth resides in men's half-finished conversations, mm. and I think that's very much what he's at. Those are fascinating reflections, and I'm very struck, Ian, by what you say, or what your incredibly perceptive student said no, yes. about the quality of the ending. Mm because it reminds me of what Alfred Brendel said, writing about the last Beethoven sonatas, that what matters is the quality of the silence when the last note, after the last note is played, that that's the effect. It isn't the last note itself, it's the silence that flows in after it. And I think one can think of Trevor in that sense mm-hmm. and in that, in, that, in that company. Writing about him recently, Julian Barnes said with a, in a slightly Olympian way that um, Trevor suffered the fate of every Irish short story writer to be called the Irish Chekhov, um, <laughs> which one could deconstruct on a number of levels. But I think the great thing about this great writer is that he is not the Irish Chekhov or anyone's Chekhov. He is a very great writer in his own terms, and it's been a terrific privilege to celebrate him with the quality of these writers here tonight. Thank you.